Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's so cold outside. Uh, How cold is it? I don't have a punchline, but it's really freaking cold. <laughs> yes, it is it's so really cold. cold. Yeah. So is- the polar vortex is here. But I so- got I got all my friends who live in the Midwest, the upper Midwest, are texting me, taunting me about the wind chill factor because they know that I think the wind chill factor is bullshit and I hate yeah. the wind chill factor. Uh-huh. And so now they have these wind chill factors like minus 50 and they're all sending me their wind chill factor trolls. Okay, but wow. you have to understand as someone who grew up in the upper Midwest that living through the cold of the upper Midwest and and taunting your friends on the coasts is also a way of showing how tough you are because you suffer and usually we would do this by noting that we had to go to school when everybody else had a snow day. But it is so cold that even in Michigan and Minnesota and Wisconsin, they close school. Wow. And in Chicago, they set the tracks on fire of the, the, of the trains. Of the trains. Yeah. So Unlike much. in D.C., where they don't do it on purpose. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> they meant to set the tracks on fire. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the Stone Cold Polar Vortex Edition. I'm Shane Harris. It's actually not as cold as I thought it was going to be. It's not, you know. In Washington, I, it's not that cold. It's not that bad. Okay, yeah, it's, it's cold. It's like 20 degrees. Let's it's not cold. Get carried away. Here. <laughs> <laughs> it's stone cold. It is not warm. It is the opposite of warm. Do you think Roger Stone is really cold right now? No, no he's, he's in, in Florida. Florida. He's in Fort Lauderdale. It's not so cold in Florida. It's cold when you're woken up at 6 a.m. with, you know, a long rifle and riot gear in your face. P.S. He did not have people with riot gear. Seriously. Knocking on his door. But they did traumatize his dogs, or so he said. Oh, really? That's what they said. Oh, wow. I would have thought that. And would... he, he's 66 years old. Yeah. I An mean, elderly, feeble, fragile man <laughs> so <laughs> traumatized by this horrific arrest that he went that straight he... to the television stations exactly. to talk about As a it. form of therapy. Did you see him with doing the flashing the Nixon oh, sign? Yeah. I mean, the guy is living his fantasy. Clearly, the weird thing is that his fantasy is to be Richard Nixon. Right. The funny thing is if you – Like the bad part. Right. If, if you'd wanted to get Roger Stone to cooperate, the, probably the best way to do it would have been to threaten not to indict him. Because like you know, like, like Roger, give psychology. it up, or we'll ignore, or we'll ignore you, for and, and you will not have that moment where you get to go on every television yeah. station and talk about how badly treated you. Then he'd buckle like a like a leaf. Which, for the record, because I'm sure we know, like, there's probably a lot of lawyers who listen to Rational Security. I'm fairly sure that most lawyers would not be thrilled with their client immediately rushing to a television camera after they just been indicted. Yeah, the whole, the whole, the whole uh, line, anything you say can and will be used against you, like 
does not have more broad implications yeah. than when you rush to television yeah. stations and, and start talking. Kind of amazing. Uh, we are here in the Jungle Studio with Ben Wittes, Tamara Kaufman Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, guys. Hi. Hey. This week on the podcast, Roger Stone is indicted in the Mueller probe. Venezuela teeters on the brink of economic and political collapse. And American hackers help the United Arab Emirates build a cyber army. Um, so let's talk about the Stone indictment. First thing, safe to say, not a surprise. Um, this is the lo- most anticipated <laughs> indictment of the entire investigation. Yeah, the, right. I mean, there were, the signals that this was coming were you know, manifest. I mean, you had Roger Stone saying he thought he was about to be indicted. He was starting a legal defense fund. Um, so let's talk about what he was charged with and what he wasn't charged with, because I think the, what he wasn't charged with actually is more interesting. And there's some tantalizing pieces in the indictment we can talk about. Um, but he, w- the charges stem from his uh, testimony to the House Intelligence Committee and lies that he is alleged to have told and efforts to tamper with witnesses before the House Intelligence Committee uh, as well. And specifically lies about his contacts uh, or his efforts to make contact with WikiLeaks, um, which he has already publicly talked about and said it essentially amounted to nothing. So there's that piece. And then there's the other stuff that he's not charged with, which seems very strongly based on the language in the indictment, to hint at an actual conspiracy or at least a collusion narrative in which uh, one could read it as someone very, very senior in the Trump campaign, we might presume even the president, then candidate himself, directing an advisor to tell Roger Stone to go figure out what WikiLeaks had on Hillary Clinton. And importantly, this happening after the Democratic National Committee had made known that it had been hacked, it believed, by Russia, which is actually a fact that is mentioned in the indictment, which I think is very interesting. So, Ben, I mean, talk a little bit about this. And I mean, do you agree with my premise that the charges, while significant, are actually less interesting than what the indictment doesn't charge him with and the sort of narrative that it seems to be hinting that, that Bob Mueller knows more about? Yeah, I agree with that completely. So I think uh, a few things. First of all, let me try to break this down. As with all of these Mueller indictments, you can tell yourself a story in which this is uh, the thin edge of a very big wedge and it's a kind of keyhole window into a much larger story. Or you can tell yourself a version of it in which this is kind of all Mueller's got Uh, It's going to peter out, right? So what he's charged with is lying about stuff that isn't even quite collusion, right? Because Mueller does not actually allege that either of his intermediaries to Julian Assange actually got through to Julian Assange, right? So what he's accused of lying about is working with these two individuals, Jerome Corsi and Randy Credico, to get to Julian Assange and bring back stuff and give it to the Trump campaign. But never clear that they actually make contact or successfully make that intermediary relationship. So if you're inclined to see this as a big peter out, you can say, hey, it's just process crime. It's just an ob- obstruction and, and perjury or, or, or false statements. And they're not even successfully alleging a a collusion. They're just alleging that they were these doofuses were trying to find out what Julian Assange got and and bring it back. 
They were on, just trying to collude. They just didn't quite succeed. And by the way, not even trying to collude. They were trying to do what Shane Harris does all the time, which is people are, believe they have big caches of information. And by the way, with the New York Times and WikiLeaks, they actually did work with WikiLeaks to get big caches of information, right? So they're really only doing what they're trying to do in a kind of goofy, bumbling way and talking about the Godfather. Well, unless you believe that they have a receipt of information that Russian hackers stole from their opponent. Right. But 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 many journalists, in fact, would have published that information if they could have got it and were trying well, to did, get yeah. get sure. that information. So yeah, you can sure. you can say that they're 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 not that's the minimalist view, right? They're they're not it's not even really collusion. They don't show they don't even allege that there's actual contact made. And by the way, they're really they're not even charged with any of that. They're just charged with the process side. The other side of it is, and the one that I think a lot of people think is the is that every component of the collusion story is teased in this indictment. We have the hacking, we have the already have the giving it to WikiLeaks by the Russians, and here you have people operating on behalf of the Trump campaign in coordination with the Trump campaign, reaching out to them trying to bring that information back and, by the way, correctly predicting both in their texts to each other and in public statements when, you know, big drops are going to happen and what subject matters they're going to cover. And so if you're inclined to look at it as a keyhole view into the larger uh, picture, the larger picture there becomes uh, very tantalizing and very interesting. And it does not seem like an accident that senior Trump administration officials are referenced or referenced being directed by somebody to pursue this information. So I have sort of a, a question, not just about what isn't included in this indictment, but also about who hasn't been indicted. And that's Jerome Corsi. So Corsi, whenever we talk, I do think one of the most sort of tantalizing pieces in all of this is that they are communicating about non-publicly known information that turns out to be true, namely that John Podesta has been hacked, right? So Corsi sort of says he guesses this. The Stone indictment in substance basically confirms that Corsi is the source of that information, right? Mm -hmm. So whether Stone is an actual intermediary sort of through to Assange and back to the Trump organization, put that aside, it actually places Corsi closer to the WikiLeaks side. And so we know that the Mueller team was interested in at least developing a, a plea agreement with Corsi, this document that he leaked. Now Stone has been indicted, but Corsi hasn't yet. And so I do have a little bit of a yeah, why Stone there? first? Yeah. Why not Corsi? Because to the extent that there, that there's something as interesting and substantive to say on collusion, it actually seems like this starts to indicate that, yeah, maybe Stone's the go-between. Maybe, maybe Stone is, uh, is somebody who's in a position to know about what, what the Trump campaign was trying to do and what information he communicated to the Trump campaign. But Corsi actually is sort of a more interesting or compelling person in terms of U.S. persons that might have been more substantively or directly involved. I, I don't know. Ben, I, I, we didn't really talk about this on the – or like 
in our immediate reaction post. But am I conflating things? No, not at all. Um, the only question, I, I have no doubt that your question is exactly the right one. The only question in my mind is what the right answer to it mm. is. And I, do you think Corsi will be indicted? So, so yeah. So, look, I try never to do predictions. I think... Especially about the future. But, <laughs> but I do think Jerome Corsi would be... An exceptionally lucky man to escape indictment. When when the when prosecutors have offered you a plea agreement and you have not merely turned it down, when you turn down a, an offer of a plea agreement, that's usually by itself a pretty good sign that you're about to be indicted. But when you then go and leak the plea agreement, that all but I think guarantees it. So I think we should all assume operate on the theory that Jerome Corsi is going to be indicted. And I can think of two possible reasons why he was not indicted in conjunction with Roger Stone. One is that the case that you would actually bring against Jerome Corsi, as opposed to the case that you would allow him to plead out to, involves information that Mueller does not yet want to release. That is, the information that, for example, would show what the contact is with Julian Assange, mm -hmm. right? So he's not ready to release that information. Uh, that's one possibility. Another possibility is uh, there are still pieces of the grand jury investigation that are pending, particularly involving Andrew Miller. And it could be that that information, while not necessary for this Stone indictment, is necessary either for the Corsi indictment or for the superseding indictment of Roger Stone that may be yet to come. So I think there's a variety of possible answers to your question, but I would be stunned if Jerome Corsi doesn't eventually get indicted. And I do think the Andrew Miller point is especially interesting in light of Matt Whitaker's comments, maybe sort of off the cuff, sweat drenched at the podium, the weirdest <laughs> so much video, sweat. so much sweat, um, where he where he basically says the Mueller, I've been fully briefed on the Mueller investigation and it's close to being wrapped up. You know, it does sound like Mueller's still interested in pressing Andrew Miller for grand jury testimony. You aren't allowed to use the grand jury to develop information for people who've already been indicted, right? They have to be planning more charges against Roger Stone or planning on indicting someone else. Or and exploring so, the possibility of sure. indicting somebody well, else. And there's this other tantalizing thing in the Stone indictment, right, that he was directed by a senior leader of the campaign. And we still don't know who that is. And if that was maybe Don Jr., for example, another person whose indictment we've kind of been expecting. Um, so, uh, you know, Peter, what does petering out mean at this point if that if we still have those kinds of facts yet to come out? Do we think also that it's possible – I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to spitballing here – to the extent that Mueller may have information about conspiracy with WikiLeaks and the campaign – and you made the analogy in the beginning, Ben, that like Roger Stone's not acting all that differently than a journalist. And WikiLeaks likes to say it's a journalistic organization. But we know that there are charges, if not pending, at least being contemplated against Julian Assange. We know from reporting that there has been 
discussions within the Justice Department over whether you can in fact charge WikiLeaks and not treat it as a press organization, which is not to say that you can't charge a press organization, but traditionally you don't when it comes to even publishing classified information. Could Bob Mueller be waiting to sort of pull any information he has in his pocket out to see how the Justice Department moves in some other way on WikiLeaks? In other words, which is to say, I may have evidence here of a crime, but first I have to know if you're willing to treat and are willing to prosecute WikiLeaks and not treat it as a media organization. So mine is sort of an, an additional question or a variant of that, which is I think it's possible that we know that there are two sides of this investigation. We know that there's a counterintelligence side. We know that there's a criminal side. This communication back and forth to WikiLeaks, I think, could actually implicate criminality at different sort of points on the chain, in part because of this sort of detail that the hacking continues to be ongoing, which has some ramifications for how you would read sort of conspiracy law. You know, that said, it's not clearly criminal. And so you could imagine Mueller sort of looking and saying, well... I've got this bucket of stuff that's just clearly crimes. Like, you're just lying about stuff. You know, you're, you're making false statements. You're witness tampering. You're not allowed to do that because that's crimes. So I'm going to charge you for it. There's all kinds of other stuff you're up to that's bad that I'm investigating that maybe bears on the president and the campaign but isn't in the realm of the kind of clear chargeable criminality. And so what we're seeing that feels fragmented is not like a first step. It's that... Only one of these investigations and only part of one of these investigations is visible to the public. There's this whole other investigation going on. And so maybe a lot of the sort of the the interesting questions about Stone are just housed within a context in which because they aren't contemplating criminal charges – we don't have access to them. Right. And then, you know, those might end up in a narrative later. In an ultimate report. Yeah. Look, there are several extant threads that we know are active. One is this Stone, Corsi, Assange thread. One is the Michael Cohen, Trump Tower, Moscow thread. We know that's still active. One is a a series of kind of Manaforti-related threads. And one is, and we still don't know whatever happened with the obstruction thread, Uh, I take Whitaker at least a little bit seriously when the acting attorney general stands up and says, with a lot of sweat, things are winding down. I don't know what that means, but I don't treat it as mere noise. And so the question is really, are we winding down the investigative phase and now we will see some major prosecutorial decisions like, are we going to see that conspiracy indictment or Is the sum total of the Mueller investigation a Russian conspiracy and a bunch of Americans who interacted with aspects of it and lied about it but didn't participate in it in a chargeable sense? Or is the Russia investigation – is the aggregate something much, much larger than that? If our working hypothesis is the latter, then we have to assume that Mueller has very intentionally played his cards close to his chest – charge the lying stuff first, and we are coming up on whatever major action we are going to see, uh, either in the form of charges or perhaps just as likely in the form of detailing it in some kind of a report. 
But I think the current data, including the Roger Stone indictment, is consistent with either of those, as has everything else been from the Flynn case and the Papadopoulos case to the the IRA and GRU indictments. Everything Mueller has done is consistent either with a big bang at the end or a report that kind of lays it all out or petering out and charging what you can along the way. And people will see in it what they want to up until the day that Mueller answers that question. Uh, Well, speaking of things that could end with a big bang or peter out, Venezuela. Who's to say? Shame. (laughs) That transition is beneath you. (laughs) Oh, come on. It was decent. It got us there. Venezuela is not going to peter out. You don't think so? It could. could. Maduro could survive. Oh, you mean like the the revolution? Yes, the yes. current crisis in Venezuela. Yeah, Ben. Oh, jeez. All right, I don't know. How that's like... <laughs> well. Fortunately, we have someone here who does know something <laughs> about Venezuela. Thank God for that. Scott Anderson from Lawfare is here. Hi, Scott. How are you doing? Good I'm to doing be back well. Thanks. It was good to have you back on. Thanks for joining us. Um, so I know you've been talking a lot and writing a lot about Venezuela during this current crisis. Just to kind of set the stage for folks who maybe aren't completely up on what's happening. Um, Kind of bring us up to speed on the nature of what's both this political crisis that's going on and then the backdrop of this just stunning economic calamity that has befell this country for for I guess more than a year now that's led to unbelievable inflation and food shortages and uh, and, violence in the streets, et cetera. So kind of Bring us up to speed on what's what's going on there right now. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, I'll, I'm going to caveat by this by saying I'm not a Venezuela expert, although I've been reading up a little bit. Neither but I'm familiar with a lot of the diplomatic and legal issues that are surrounding this. So I'm coming at it from that angle. Um, but Venezuela, I do think it's important to get that sort of context. Venezuela is a country that used to be one of these democracies that was relatively functional uh, in the region. It was in the 1970s, it was reasonably prosperous. It has substantial oil wealth, kind of natural resources available to it. But it's been in a state of decline through the Chavez government, through economic mismanagement, uh, through political turmoil. And for the last five years since Chavez's death in 2013 has been led by Nicolas Maduro, uh, a figure who has really centralized power, proven increasingly authoritarian, uh, and has led led the country into this real downward economic and social spiral more than anything else. Uh, The country is facing and has been for several years facing a really dire humanitarian crisis, just lacking access to basic resources, medicine, food shortages, things all across the bend. At this point, it's highly, highly reliant on oil exports, of which the United States is actually one of the major clients through Citgo, uh, which is a subsidiary of the national oil company uh, that people may be familiar with from Citgo stations on the street. Uh, that source of oil wealth is is what it's really relying on up until this point. Maduro himself, meanwhile, has really centralized power and set up kind of parallel institutions to try and marginalize the few institutions that still have a grasp in which the opposition still has a footing, I should say. And number one among those is the National Assembly. Since 2015 elections, the National Assembly has been dominated by political opposition to Maduro. But Maduro has been trying to marginalize it. Uh, he's even set up kind of parallel legislative body to try and trump actions coming out of the National Assembly. This past year, he held 
re-election for himself elections where he claimed to have won overwhelmingly. But Which vast- is easy to do when you forbid any of your opposition from running against you and put some of them in jail. Exactly. Uh, to begin, that, that's just the it's beginning of the, the problems with the elections. Election. <laughs> Don't tell anyone around here that. <laughs> uh, but uh, the with the election results, was not recognized by huge swaths of the international community. Earlier this year, that led the National Assembly to say, hey, we have this provision in our constitution that says when the office of the presidency is vacant, the president, not the president of the country, the president of the National Assembly, who in this case is a man named Juan Guaido, is supposed to step into a position as the interim president until elections can be held. They nominated him to this position, Mr. Guaido, to this position in early January. On January 23rd, he said, I accept, essentially. He said, I'm going to act as the interim president. Within hours, the Trump administration came out and recognized him as such. They were followed by, frankly, a majority of countries in South America uh, and in the first swath as well as Canada. Uh, The UK and European countries have issued statements of support, maybe not quite going as far as recognizing, but still saying, we want to see elections quickly and we'll recognize you if we don't see it shortly. Uh, Israel and Australia have also gotten on board. Meanwhile, Russia, China, Cuba, and a few other countries have stuck by Maduro and continue to provide him support. So this is a, a question of recognizing an elected government or recognizing a government, not recognizing the, the country, right? We still ha- recognize that Venezuela is a country. We have diplomatic relations. It's a question of who we recognize as the head of the government of the country? Yeah, exactly right. Uh, recognition is this idea about what it is. It is the condition, the acts that lead one state to recognize another state as a state, meaning it can act under international law. It can sign treaties. It can control its territory. It has sovereignty. Um, but they, we tend to break that down into the idea of the state and the government. And at certain times, sometimes certain states feel that the governments of other, other states transitions in ways. Some say some other new entity has a better claim to being the leader of that country, the government, uh, than whoever is claiming or filled in that role in the past. And that's what's happened here. So one way to look at this is that this is the uh, Trump administration actually doing something on behalf of democracy as defined by the Uh, constitutional processes of the country in question. This was not something the Trump administration engineered, right? The National Assembly actually invoked this provision of the Venezuelan constitution. There, Guaido uh, accepted the uh, resolution, declared himself interim president, and the Trump administration acted in response to that. So should we look at this as an example of the Trump administration, which we've all roundly criticized for engaging with autocrats uh, warmly when they're Russian and uh, Saudi and Turkish, uh, actually doing exactly what we would want the United States government doing, deferring to democratic processes in Venezuela and responding aggressively on behalf of the democratic processes of Venezuela? Or should we look at it as something else? And if so, what? Well, so things are never quite that neat in international relations, and certainly not when you have questions about the legitimacy of uh, of a government that actually is wielding authority in the country. But I, I think what I find curious is not that the Trump administration is taking the stance that Maduro is illegitimate. There are, there are constitutional reasons 
to think that Maduro is illegitimate, although who decides in today's Venezuela what the Constitution means in a given circumstance when the courts have been packed with Maduro supporters? Like who who is the arbiter of what's constitutional in Venezuela? That It's subjective. So that's you know, a little murky. Secondly, were we just responding to the sovereign decisions of the National Assembly? Well, not exactly. These guys were in back channel contact with the Trump administration talking about this possibility before they did it. And they knew that they would be welcomed if they did it. And that's not so unusual either, frankly, in situations like this. Um, But the question that struck me when this Trump administration decision was announced was like, There are many times when presidents, American presidents, have looked at a decline in democracy or a backsliding or a coup, you know, in another country and said, we don't think that guy is the legitimate ruler. But we don't always do it formally by shifting our recognition. That's usually a later step. Usually we start with the rhetoric and we say, for example, Bashar Assad has lost the legitimacy to rule, right? And then at some later point, we say, oh, here's a legitimate opposition that we're going to recognize. So we kind of went like from zero to 60 on this with no turning of the screw and no opportunity for Maduro to be like, oh, fuck, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe I need to recalculate here. Uh, this is the not the G-rated podcast today. Um and, and like, why did we do it that way? Why couldn't we sort of build a coalition, escalate slowly like a normal administration? Well, I think there's a, a good answer for that. And that's because this sort of declaration of recognition has become a foreign policy tool. It has real consequences tied up into it that I think the Trump administration wanted to bring to bear here. And it's not unprecedented. I think the best parallel for this really is in 2011 when the Obama administration oh, recognized Libya. exactly recognized ah. the Transitional National Council in Libya. Did so a little bit of a slower pace. I think that's a fair criticism potentially here, um, but for similar reasons. And the reasons basically... I think boil down to this. It's money. Oil. It's all about <laughs> oil, 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 perhaps in this case particularly, but more fundamentally than that, it's about money. Uh, the United States is the repository for a huge amount of foreign government assets. Uh, we get foreign currency reserves for a lot of countries. Many countries keep other operating accounts here for trade purposes and various other purposes. Uh, in the case of Venezuela, of course, we have Citgo, a U.S. subsidiary of its national oil company that operates here, generating a lot of very important revenue for it. And what happens when the United States particularly recognizes an entity is that there is a provision of law, section. 25B of the Federal Reserve Act, I believe 25B, maybe 24B, uh, which says essentially, hey, Federal Reserve banks, when we change our recognition policy, that means that all those Venezuela accounts that are in the name of Venezuela or the Central Bank of Venezuela, now you report on those to the person we say. Our recognition decision then ships that person. So essentially, Guaido is now in control of certain accounts held for the Venezuelan government. Not only that, that determination actually flows downhill, not just to the Federal Reserve Banks, but to any federally insured bank. That means most major U.S. financial institutions are going to have to adopt the same position. So it's this double benefit, a twofold advantage for Guaido. We are both cutting off the control of the Maduro regime for a lot of these assets, and Guaido is getting access to them. Uh, and all of a sudden, he has a lot more leverage over the Maduro regime <laughs> and in he can, exercising And he can pay conduct. them off, which he couldn't do before. He can use the funds, and he can use the leverage the funds give. If Maduro needs these funds to govern, now they have to work with Guaido to at least some sense. So at the end of the day, 
should we understand this as a good move on the part of the Trump administration, or should we understand it in as a lot of people, you know, are? Hey, it's Bolton, and you know they brought back Elliot Abrams to give it a whole Iran Contra flavor. Obviously, and, <laughs> we're we're plotting a coup or an invasion, or right? Something. I mean, like well, how, we sent signals to that effect. How, how in the aggregate should we understand this? Well, you know, my sense is that this this policy, in some ways, may have been justifiable, but they have really gone out on a limb and doing it very aggressively and very publicly too. Very I mean, publicly. Yeah. Usually, this is something you may work up towards. You're going to lay the foundation for, as Tammy mentioned. Here, they've really put themselves on a limb. The clearest example of that, I think, is this tuft we've gotten in over the U.S. embassy in Caracas. Uh, the, essentially, Maduro said, "Hey, get all your diplomats out of here," and the State Department said, "We don't recognize you as the president. You don't have the authority to kick us out." Now they removed most of their personnel, but they. They've left a number of diplomats in Caracas now who are essentially under siege. Uh, they've cut off resources and utilities. They're there kind of stashed down. They have it's supplies like to our, last a period. our embassy staff in Kuwait after Saddam invaded who Absolutely. were like drinking out of the swimming pool. Absolutely. I mean, these situations do arise. Diplomats are ready for them. Embassies are ready for them. Very rarely do we go into them voluntarily. And that is what we have done in this case. Uh, and that strikes me as a pretty reckless position. You know, even if these people have the supplies to stay there for a year, what happens if one of them has a heart attack or needs urgent medical attention? All of a sudden you have you've put yourself in a pre-baked hostage situation. And I, I'm, you know, I'm rolling my eyes and gritting my teeth because this is, these are the same people who just lambasted the Obama administration and Secretary Clinton over Benghazi, which was exactly. a situation that evolved in super quickly that no one could have anticipated that it was impossible to respond to in a way that would have saved the lives of Chris Stevens and his colleagues. And and yet now they've done this voluntarily, put our people in harm's way as a as pawns, basically, is what you're saying. That's that's I think the way to read it. They're making a very symbolic front, but it's got very real human costs. This feels like something that could end with maybe many bangs. Uh, After all, this uh, is uh, a lot, a lot of crises converging. I'm uh, now. I'm actually like hoping for a fizzle. Well, Scott, thanks for coming on and explaining it to of us. Of course, happy to be here. I'm gonna sleep great now. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to talk about a story that dropped today, and I have a feeling that this is going to be getting a lot of attention beyond today, especially once we're sort of out of the news vortex that we're in. Reuters published this extensive investigation on uh, the United Arab Emirates using, as they put it, cyber super weapons to spy on the iPhones of foes, um, which really doesn't entirely capture what happened here. Um, Let me see if I can. Foes defined very broadly. (laughs) Um, uh, I'm going to kick this over to Susan in a second, but just to set the stage, this is a group, a company really, of former American hackers who had worked for the NSA, one of whom actually goes on record in sort of a whistleblowing capacity in this story, to describe how they went to go work for the UAE, as Reuters puts it, cyber mercenaries, using incredibly sophisticated uh, and I should probably add also very expensive and hard to develop technologies, which we can talk about maybe as we go on, um, to help the UAE spy on its adversaries. Uh, And at some point along the way, some of these members of this team start to have misgivings about it when it turns out that they're not only spying on uh, people in the West, but they're also potentially spying on Americans. So, Susan, let me start. Why don't you give me some, give us some more detail on this and particularly your reaction because as Reuters reports it, these are individuals 
who worked for NSA, your old agency, and then who essentially took their expertise at surveillance and hacking and then went and sold it to a foreign government. Yeah, so this is a pretty wild story, and it's hard to to unpack all the various implications here. Um, So essentially what this is the story of, not a hugely uncommon one, at least sort of for the first few steps, um, which is that you have individuals who are basically trained and brought up at NSA, whether they're, you know, in the military or actually in the intelligence community. Then they sort of make the first hop out to go and be a contractor because they make about twice as much money. And actually, a lot of times they don't even necessarily change offices. The only thing that really changes is the color of their badge. If they have a blue badge, if they're in, they work for the government, or they have a green badge if they're contractors. Can we pause for a moment and say, your tax dollars at work. Your tax dollars at work, <laughs> folks. Um, and so... Right. So this sort of this moving out from, OK, you, you work for the U.S. government, the U.S. government has trained you, then you're, you're moving out into the contractor space. Then the contractors start to work for foreign governments. Um, and this is where things start to get a little bit murky. So in this particular story, it appears that these individuals were working for a U.S. contractor, then go to, to work for a different Maryland-based cybersecurity company, that develops a contract with United Arab Emirates. And so initially, they're working with the Emiratis on counterterrorism efforts, which, Tim, you tell me if you think this is an overstatement, is kind of the one area of security coordination, right? So uh, we aren't we aren't intelligence allies. We aren't, uh, this is not a member of the Five Eyes. This is not a broader general intelligence allied relationship. But on this narrow issue of sort of counterterrorism and especially counterterrorism against ISIS, the United States and the Emirati governments actually do work together. Right. We work together on this and we have worked together because Emiratis have joined the mission in Afghanistan. Those are the two security things we do together. So these are Americans who are now working for a company that's supporting the Emiratis on this counterterrorism mission, which is, of course, not all that different from what the NSA might be doing if they're supporting, right, if you're engaged in this kind of cooperation, because it's the same, uh, you know, it's, it's the same sort of types of targets. Then all of a sudden, because you're working for the Emiratis, their national security or counterterrorism targets aren't the same people that the United States might define as targets. All of a sudden, it also includes dissidents or journalists, right? So the the sort of sphere of people you might be targeting gets a little bit broader. Then it gets even broader because you're not just talking about Emiratis or people who are sort of non-Westerners. And I want to be careful in why somebody at NSA or former NSA might feel differently about that distinction. And really it's because the United States government has not just rules about spying on U.S. citizens, but also rules about the targeting of the citizens of foreign partners and Five Eyes partners. So there is a difference whenever you're sitting in a seated NSA between a Brit and an Emirati, or, or there's a long sort of list of other people. So already you're in sort of the murky territory of potentially enabling human rights abuses or, or the intelligence surveillance for purposes that aren't just outside the interests of the United States government or don't, no longer align with the U.S. government, but actually are antithetical to the values of the U.S. intelligence community, which is that we don't use our intelligence tools for these purposes. 
we use our intelligence tools against these purposes, right, in order to create a world in which journalists can operate free of precisely this type of, of oppression. Then it appears, as this mission became more security sensitive, control more and more sort of actual you know, right. So imagine the other side of the NSA contractor situation, right? So now you have contractors working on an Emirati project, and now Emirati security services are saying, no, 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 we're going to do a little bit more of this. We're going to do a little bit more of this. Because not only are they targeting a British journalist and other Western targets, it appears that now they are also targeting Americans. And so through this sort of mission creep, you have a group of at least one named, but it sounds like multiple, former NSA employees that are now essentially helping a foreign government spy on Americans. So at this point, they say, the red line has been crossed. We are now the bad guys. I would argue that the line was crossed a really, really long way back. (laughs) And this is one of the reasons why The notion of people leaving the intelligence community and going to work for foreign governments is an incredibly fraught one because the early story that might be told about what's happening here, it's really, really easy for precisely this kind of thing to happen. So I think there's about 50 different points that are like I could spend the next hour ranting about, but I think that's kind of my my overall takeaway about what occurred here. Can I add a couple of yeah. of points just as we set the table here? The other piece of this is that, you know, the the named source in this story, and apparently a bunch of her colleagues who are unnamed sources, originally went to work for a U.S. contractor who was doing this business with the Emirati government. And then the the contract was given to an Emirati contractor And they all were basically told, if you want to keep your job, you now have to work for this Emirati company. So then they're not working for an American company anymore that's at least under export controls of some kind. They're working for an Emirati company working for the Emirati government. And that, too, to me, should have been like, whoa, am I on the up and up here? But I I think the other thing that's important to remember and the distinction you drew between like Five Eyes on the one hand and other American partners on the other is really, really important. The Emiratis have been building these forms of security cooperation with the United States, not just because we agree on policy matters or on a shared agenda, but because they want to build capabilities that they know we have. They sent their forces to Afghanistan in order to learn special forces stuff and counterinsurgency capability from us. And now they have 20,000 Emirati troops trained who have cycled through Afghanistan working alongside NATO forces. They hired this American contractor with these former NSA folks to learn American techniques and gain American know-how and technology so that they could then build their own domestic cybersecurity that is not under any of the laws or norms that govern ours. And so the United States is, in essence, like creating little Frankensteins out there in the world to the extent that we don't think about how this cooperation establishes capabilities elsewhere. One other thing. I don't have a lot to add to that, but I do want to point out that at the point at which 
U.S. persons overseas are working with a foreign intelligence service to target U.S. persons domestically uh, or even knowingly participating in activity that is reasonably related to that, I do not see how they could be doing that without committing at least conspiracy to violate the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, right? Because you're talking about using targeted exploits to access people's iPhones. And I'm just not sure like how you do that without running afoul of the U.S. criminal law. Well, apparently you do it from the UAE. <laughs> no, no. But as we learned in the GRU indictment right. and as we learned in the various PLA indictments, you can do it from – as as a, as a representative yeah. of a foreign intelligence service, and we will still indict you. And by the way, if you're a U.S. national working for the GRU or right, the – Then you never come home again. The, the, That's the, what I'm the, getting the, at. The, the, yeah. You don't get a pass because you're, because you're former NSA. So should the, the woman who's quoted in this story extensively be prepared to be indicted? Well, she's now fully cooperating with the FBI according to the story. So, so I think she probably expects to be. I don't think she does, actually, in part because I don't think she would be talking about this sort of investigation in the way she is on the record if she actually expected sort of criminal liability. It's kind of what I figured, um, but I wasn't we, sure. We don't, basically, there's not enough detail in this story to tell us whether or not there actually is sort of a, a risk of right, what networks were targeted and sort of it, it's, it's highly specific. So I think the two areas in which it sounds like the FBI is actually focused on is did they cross the line from just being someone who was trained in the U.S. intelligence community and is therefore doing their job after that training or have they actually disclosed some, some sorts of classified uh, you know, information or techniques and then secondly, did they actually knowingly you know, act, target an American? Right. All I'm saying is the U.S. position is that hacking by foreign intelligence agencies of U.S. computers and infrastructure is a crime. And it is a crime if you're the PLA. It's a crime if you're the GRU. And it is almost – it is a crime if you are a, a – a, 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 a hacker on behalf of the UAE. The novelty here is that some of the hackers who do these operations may be U.S. nationals who used to work for NSA, or they are almost certainly trained by those people uh, who may have some degree of knowledge that they are they are participating in an operation that ultimately targets U.S. persons. I would say that anybody who participates in, a, in such an operation with such knowledge does so at grave risk of criminal prosecution. Yeah, and I think there are – look, there are, this is a really fascinating story that is going to generate lots of other stories. And there's actually a companion piece uh, that Reuters published at the same time. So one of the really interesting stories of this is actually the technical story of sort of karma and the, the platform that they were using and basically the ability to remotely exploit iPhones w without having somebody actually click a link sort of a uh, some sort of which is really very hard to powerful do. <laughs> that's exploit. very powerful right within that there's also sort of um, citizen lab uh, which is actually a Canadian company that first identified some of the exploits that were targeting dissidents um, that might have been deployed pursuant to this program in separate reporting uh, citizen lab has has come out and said actually that they have been targeted by some group that looks 
kind of like Black Cube, right? So sort of these undercover operatives meeting with their employees, trying to sort of solicit information. So they're sort of there's well, that and they weird also piece of uncovered it. Uh, hacking by this Israeli company NSO, which uses a different exploit, right? But does many of the same things and appears to have sold its technology in the Emirates. So, right. you know, the Emiratis are clearly using a lot of different pathways to gain this capability. It's clearly really important to them. And they seem to be using it. I mean, in this Reuters story, they it says they hacked the phone of the Emir of Qatar. <laughs> you know, Kind of amazing. Right. I, mean, I remember what, as I was reading this story, thinking back to when I was writing my book At War and sort of trying to imagine the near future when these kinds of government, traditionally governmental capabilities would become privatized and would be taken up by countries that were able to pay for them. And in a sense, it wasn't surprising to me at all. And this ends up in the UAE which is a country that, you know, with incredible resources to buy all kinds of, of weaponry and technological know-how, has a huge incentive to do it vis-a-vis -vis its rivalry with Qatar. And by the way, uh, you know, to the extent that Saudi Arabia and the UAE are aligned, their main enemy is Iran, which has a ferocious cyber capability that it's been building within the state for a long time. I guess in, in a weird way, I read this story thinking like, this isn't remotely surprising. I mean, it's stunning. This is what you expected well, to it, see. Yeah. And I think a lot of experts expected to see this because the, techno the technological barrier to entry to either build or acquire this kind of traditionally nation-state level uh, capability is so low compared to traditional kinetic weapons. I mean, it's just not that hard to go buy it. And, they, and the UAE already has relationships with the very companies and sort of defense infrastructure and the military industrial complex in the U.S. to know how to access so it. So I think it is surprising in one respect. I, I almost entirely agree with that. But there's one respect in which I think it is surprising. And that is that the State Department and NSA apparently early on at least – supported and approved of this arrangement between the company and the UAE and whether that whether they uh, ever had knowledge of the kind of mission creep that Susan described I certainly don't know and I would certainly hope the answer is no if they did I think that's a major scandal I, I think the the answer to that is embedded in this which is, is is assuming we accept this that it's true right that the NSA was briefed early on it's pretty clear that by 2016 the the government has launched a counterintelligence investigation into this project and actually the person who is the whistleblower here Lori Shroud is stopped at Dulles flying back into the United States and they've launched a full investigation so whatever and my And she says I'm not telling you guys jack to yeah. the FBI jack. agents yeah. which which that's pretty badass <laughs> Well it's also really dumb <laughs> So I, I do think I, I think there's sort of hints of of what might have happened there. Look, I, I think the the sort of the the big like takeaway question from this is: Should we be implementing policies to stop this stuff? Right? The writing has been on the wall for a while. This like arms export control, the murkiness with contractors, the frenemy relationships or cooperate limited cooperation on tools that are essentially dual use or can be repurposed. You know, what should the rules of this be? And I do think a story like this, and, and I hope we see Congress really taking this up, 
how do you balance this? You can't tell people that they aren't allowed to leave the U.S. government and work for private contractors. You aren't really allowed to tell American contractors they aren't allowed to work for foreign governments. How on earth do we set rules sort of in this space? And so I think that's the that's the big issue that for having seen the writing on the wall for as long as we have, we haven't even begun to remotely get an idea about how we're going to deal with this in the long term. Okay, so we saw the writing on the wall, but we were whistling past the graveyard, <laughs> and now it's all come home to roost. Oh, my. <laughs> she got it all in there. Well, on that happy note, <laughs> let's mixed move on to object. Mixed you. <laughs> Tammy's object is a, is a bucket of mixed metaphors. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, who has object lessons today? Ben has one. Do you guys have any? I have one too. Okay. Ben, you go first. So my object lesson, this is partly a log rolling object and partly a an account of how cute Susan's uh, older child is. So uh, Matt Kahn, our intrepid audio engineer, and I have been working on a fun little project of creating on the Lawfare podcast uh, feed what we're calling Lawfare podcast shorts, which are we're going to sort of do – we experiment with much shorter things that we can add to our twice a week feed. So this week, uh, we took, for example, the uh, national intelligence threat testimony from the other day, and we isolated just the interesting parts of it. And we sort of boiled it down to 15 minutes. And so we thought, like, it would be neat to have a special feed on a special feature on the feed of, of short little things that weren't full episodes. And in an homage to the great Radio Lab introduction when they used to do shorter episodes and they had the host's child in the middle of the introduction shouting the word shorts, uh, we thought we needed a small child who would uh, shout shorts for us. So it could be <laughs> I'm Benjamin Wittes and this is the Lawfare Podcast. Shorts. So you just so happened to have one of those on hand. Exactly. A small so, child who shouts. Child. <laughs> who likes to shout. Who yeah. loves to shout. So <laughs> last night, uh, Matt and I texted Susan and we uh, said, hey, we know this is a weird request, but can you record your kid saying shorts? And uh, so I won't play the entire sequence of efforts in that regard, uh, but suffice it to say it is roll on the floor funny. And here is the introduction to the Lawfare podcast short segment, including uh, the Hennessy contribution. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare podcast. Shorts. January 30th, 2019. The part you don't hear is when I ask him to say shorts and he repeatedly responds, pants. <laughs> <laughs> because it's winter, mom. You Come know on. how to work with difficult actors, though. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you got the talent under control. Well, that's great. So it's all, it's in the Lawfare family. Yeah. yeah. Um, so my object is uh, I went last week to the theater. Ooh. Not the movie theater. The live theater? The live theater. Uh, arena stage. I went to the premiere of this new play, Kleptocracy, uh, which is by a playwright named Kenneth Lynn, who, among other things, has written for the House of Cards series. Um, and it is this, it's the fictional telling of the rise of uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, who became the oligarch who ran Yukos, and the rise of Vladimir Putin and the 
way that those two kind of came together in a, in a massive conflict. Uh, and ultimately, Khodorkovsky was imprisoned, and uh, Putin engineers the uh, the overtaking of Yukos and reabsorbing it into Rosneft. But it's this sort of it's this uh, the story of that, and also this meditation on the nature of power in modern day Russia after the fall of the Soviet Union. And it was fascinating to see these ideas being played with these characters, particularly Putin, who we recognize from our own American, you know, Saga and Lafayette Russe, uh, for him to be playing with that and the politics of that uh, from the Russian perspective, obviously an American telling a Russian story. Um, first act's a little clunky, but the second act actually kind of redeems it. Uh, it's a really good production. It's really fun. I kind of came away from it thinking, okay, did I see a history play and how much of this is exactly how it happened? Um, but the actor who plays Putin is delightful and really kind of hilarious. Um, but it's sort of an interesting companion piece to, you know, what we're all living through and what we're talking about mm. now. Uh, and it was just uh, wonderfully acted and well-staged and uh, it's great. It's here in Washington at the arena if you want to go see it. Kleptocracy. What a cultured life you live. I know. I was it. just thinking the same thing, you culture vulture. I know. It was very nice. And uh, the arena got a shout out to Arena, which uh, comped my ticket. And as a, they invited the press to come see it. So uh-huh. we appreciate and that. And here you are giving them a shout out on the pod. You know, so. it was worthwhile. Yeah, it was a good thing. <laughs> uh, and speaking of the pod, that brings us to the end. We are shouting out. Which is All good because I feel like our voices are. Uh, my voice is actually yeah. failing right now. Oh, it's tough. We're going to make it through, you guys. It's a little longer. Spring is coming. It's coming. Rational Security is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page on the Lawfare website where you can remember you can buy Rational Security merch. Yes. It's cold. You need those hoodies. And the baby grows. Trade baby grows. Baby grows. <laughs> we had a reader scold us about the uh, etymology of baby grow. Oh, really? Yeah, apparently yeah, it's an American like- thing. What? You said it's it was American. It's trademarked and everything. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Who knew? We've been corrected. Yeah. Uh, you can we follow love us. our smart listeners. We sure do. Absolutely. Teach us things. Absolutely. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. You can find us on Facebook. When you download the podcast, please make sure to leave a rating and review so that more smart people can start listening to the show. Our audio engineer this week was Matthew Kahn. The show was edited and produced by Jem Patia Howell. Music this week by Roger Stone and his new trio with Andrew Miller and Jerome Corsi called Tricky Dicks. <laughs> Excellent. Yes, you know if he had a band, that's what it would be. Yeah. It would. So for Actually, you, if he had a band, it would be Manafort, Black, and, oh, and yeah. Stone or whatever order they put those That's true. In. They could be the trio, too. Yeah. Yeah. And Sophia Yan would not play with any of them. <laughs> would never do it. On behalf of my good friends Tamara Kaufman Wittes, Ben Wittes, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll talk to you next week. Bye bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com.